Part three of Bartleby the Scrivener. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Bred by Bob Newfeld. Bartleby the Scrivener, a story of Wall Street by Herman Melville. Part three. He remained as ever a fixture in my chamber. Nay, if that were possible, he became still more of a fixture than before. What was to be done? He would do nothing in the office. Why should he stay there? In plain fact, he had now become a millstone to me, not only useless as a necklace, but afflictive to bear. Yet I was sorry for him. I speak less than truth when I say that, on his own account, he occasioned me uneasiness. If he would have but named a single relative or friend, I would instantly have written, and urged their taking the poor fellow away to some convenient retreat. But he seemed alone, absolutely alone in the universe, a bit of wreck in the mid-Atlantic. At length necessities connected with my business tyrannized over all other considerations. Decently as I could, I told Bartleby that in six days' time he must unconditionally leave the office. I warned him to take measures, in the interval, for procuring some other abode. I offered to assist him in this endeavour, if he himself would but take the first step towards a removal. "'And when you finally quit me, Bartleby,' added I, "'I shall see that you go not away entirely unprovided.' six days from this hour, remember. At the expiration of that period I peeped behind the screen, and, lo, Bartleby was there. I buttoned up my coat, balanced myself, advanced slowly towards him, touched his shoulder, and said, The time has come. You must quit this place. I am sorry for you. Here is money. You must go. I would prefer not, he replied, with his back still towards me. You must. He remained silent. Now, I had an unbounded confidence in this man's common honesty. He had frequently restored to me sixpences and shillings carelessly dropped upon the floor for I am apt to be very reckless in such shirt-button affairs. The proceeding, then, which followed, will not be deemed extraordinary. "'Bartleby,' said I, "'I owe you twelve dollars on account. Here are thirty-two. The odd twenty are yours. Will you take it?' And I handled the bills towards him. But he made no motion. I will leave them here, then, putting them, putting them under a weight on the table. Then, taking my hat and cane and going to the door, I tranquilly turned and added, After you have removed your things from these offices, Bartleby, you will of course lock the door, since everyone is now gone for the day but you, and, if you please, slip your key underneath the mat, so that I may have it in the morning. I shall not see you again. So, good-bye to you. 
If hereafter, in your new place of abode, I can be of any service to you, do not fail to advise me by letter. Good-bye, Bartleby, and fare you well. But he answered not a word. Like the last column of some ruined temple, he remained standing mute and solitary in the middle of the otherwise deserted room. As I walked home in a pensive mood, my vanity got the better of my pity. I could not but highly plume myself on my masterly management in getting rid of Bartleby. Masterly, I call it, and such it must appear to any dispassionate thinker. The beauty of my procedure seemed to consist in its perfect quietness. There was no vulgar bullying, no bravado of any sort, no choleric hectoring and striding to and fro across the apartment, jerking out vehement commands for Bartleby to bundle himself up with his beggarly traps. Nothing of the kind. Without loudly bidding Bartleby depart, as an inferior genius might have done, I assumed the ground that depart he must, and upon that assumption built all I had to say. The more I thought about my procedure, the more I was charmed with it. Nevertheless, next morning, upon awakening, I had my doubts. I had somehow slept off the fumes of vanity. One of the coolest and wisest hours a man has is just after he awakes in the morning. My procedure seemed as sagacious as ever, but only in theory. How it would prove in practice, there was the rub. It was truly a beautiful thought to have assumed Bartleby's departure, but after all that assumption was simply my own, and none of Bartleby's. The great point was not whether I had assumed that he would quit me, but whether he would prefer so to do. He was more of a man of preferences than assumptions. After breakfast I walked downtown, arguing the probabilities pro and con. One moment I thought it would prove a miserable failure, and Bartleby would be found all alive at my office as usual. The next moment it seemed certain that I should see his chair empty, and so I kept veering about. At the corner of Broadway and Canal Street I saw quite an excited group of people standing in earnest conversation. "'I'll take odds he doesn't,' said a voice as I passed. "'Doesn't go?' "'Done,' said I. "'Put up your money.' I was instinctively putting my hand in my pocket to produce my own, when I remembered that this was an election day. The words I had overheard bore no reference to Bartleby, but to the success or non-success of some candidate for the mayoralty. In my intent frame of mind I had, as it were, imagined that all Broadway shared in my excitement, and were debating the same question with me. I passed on very thankful that the uproar of the street screened my momentary absent-mindedness. As I had intended, I was earlier than usual at my office door. I stood listening for a moment. All was still. He must be gone. I tried the knob. The door was locked. Yes, my procedure had worked to a charm. 
he indeed must be vanished. Yet a certain melancholy mixed with this. I was almost sorry for my brilliant success. I was fumbling under the door-mat for the key, which Bartleby was to have left there for me, when accidentally my knee knocked against a panel, producing a summoning sound and in response a voice came to me from within. Not yet. I am occupied. It was Bartleby. I was thunderstruck. For an instant I stood like the man who, pipe in mouth, was killed one cloudless afternoon long ago in Virginia by a summer lightning. At his own warm open window he was killed and remained leaning out there upon the dreamy afternoon till some one touched him when he fell. "'Not gone,' I murmured at last, but again obeying that wondrous ascendancy which the inscrutable scrivener had over me, and from which ascendancy, for all my chafing, I could not completely escape, I slowly went downstairs and out into the street and while walking round the block considered what I should next do in this unheard-of perplexity. Turn the man out by an actual thrusting I could not. To drive him away by calling him hard names would not do. Calling in the police was an unpleasant idea, and yet permit him to enjoy his cadaverous triumph over me, this too I could not think of what was to be done? Or, if nothing could be done, was there anything further that I could assume in the matter? Yes, as before I had prospectively assumed that Bartleby would depart, so now I might retrospectively assume that departed he was. In the legitimate carrying out of this assumption, I might enter my office in a great hurry, and pretending not to see Bartleby at all, walk straight against him as if he were air. Such a proceeding would, in a singular degree, have the appearance of a home thrust. It was hardly possible that Bartleby could withstand such an application of the doctrine of assumptions. But, upon second thoughts, the success of the plan seemed rather dubious. I resolved to argue the matter over with him. "'Bartleby,' said I, entering the office with a quietly severe expression, "'I am seriously displeased. I am pained, Bartleby. I had thought better of you. I had imagined you of such a gentlemanly organization that in any delicate dilemma a slight hint would have suffice, in short, an assumption. But it appears I am deceived.' Why, I added, unaffectedly starting, you have not even touched that money yet, pointing to it just where I had left it the evening previous. He answered nothing. Will you or will you not quit me? I now demanded in a sudden passion, advancing close to him. I would prefer not to quit you, he replied, gently emphasizing the not. What? earthly right have you to stay here? Do you pay rent? Do you pay my taxes? Or is this property yours?' He answered nothing. 
are you ready to go on and write now are your eyes recovered could you copy a small paper for me this morning or help examine a few lines or step round to the post-office in a word will you do anything at all to give a colouring to your refusal to depart the premises he silently retired into his hermitage i was now in such a state of nervous resentment that i thought it but prudent to check myself at present from further demonstrations bartleby and i were alone i remembered the tragedy of the unfortunate adams and the still more unfortunate colt in the solitary office of the latter and how poor colt being dreadfully incensed by adams and imprudently permitting himself to get wildly excited was at unawares hurried into his fatal act an act which certainly no man could possibly deplore more than the actor himself often it had occurred to me in my ponderings upon the street that had that altercation taken place in the public street or at a private residence it would not have terminated as it did it was the circumstance of being alone in a solitary office upstairs of a building entirely unhallowed by humanizing domestic associations an uncarpeted office doubtless of a dusty haggard sort of appearance this it must have been which greatly helped to enhance the irritable desperation of the hapless colt but when this old atom of resentment rose in me and tempted me concerning bartleby i grappled him and threw him how why simply by recalling the divine injunction a new commandment give i unto you that ye love one another yes this it was that saved me aside from higher considerations charity often operates as a vastly wise and prudent principle a great safeguard to its possessor men have committed murder for jealousy's sake and anger's sake and hatred's sake and selfishness sake and spiritual pride's sake but no man that ever i heard of ever committed a diabolical murder for sweet charity's sake mere self-interest then if no better motive can be enlisted should especially with high-tempered men prompt all beings to charity and philanthropy at any rate upon the occasion in question i strove to drown my exasperated feelings towards the scrivener by benevolently construing his conduct poor fellow poor fellow thought i he didn't mean anything and besides he has seen hard times and ought to be indulged i endeavoured also immediately to occupy myself and at the same time to comfort my despondency i tried to fancy that in the course of the morning at such time as might prove agreeable to him bartleby of his own free accord would emerge from his hermitage and take up some decided line of march in the direction of the door but no half-past twelve o'clock came turkey began to glow in the face overturn his inkstand and become generally obstreperous nippers abated down into quietude and courtesy ginger nut munched his noon apple 
and Bartleby remained standing at his window in one of his profoundest dead-wall reveries. Will it be credited? Ought I to acknowledge it? That afternoon I left the office without saying any further word to him. Some days now passed, during which, at leisure intervals, I looked a little into Edwards on the Will and Priestly on Necessity. Under the circumstances, those books induced a salutary feeling. Gradually, I slid into the persuasion that these troubles of mind touching the scrivener had been all predestinated from eternity, and Bartleby was billeted upon me for some mysterious purpose of an all-wise providence, which it was not for a mere mortal like me to fathom. Yes, Bartleby, stay here beyond your screen, thought I. I shall persecute you no more. You are harmless and noiseless as any of these old chairs. In short, I never feel so private as when I know you are here. At last I see it, I feel it, I penetrate to the predestined purpose of my life. I am content. Others may have loftier parts to enact, but my mission in this world, Bartleby, is to furnish you with an office-room for such period as you may see fit to remain. I believe that this wise and blessed frame of mind would have continued with me, had it not been for the unsolicited and uncharitable remarks obtruded upon me by my professional friends who visited the rooms. But thus it often is that the constant friction of illiberal minds wears out at last the best resolves of the more generous. Though, to be sure, when I reflected upon it, it was not strange that people entering my office should be struck by the peculiar aspect of the unaccountable Bartleby, and so be tempted to throw out some sinister observations concerning him. Sometimes an attorney having business with me, and calling at my office, and finding no one but the scrivener there, would undertake to obtain some sort of precise information from him touching my whereabouts. But without heeding his idle talk, Bartleby would remain standing immovable in the middle of the room. So, after contemplating him in that position for a while, the attorney would depart, no wiser than he came. Also, when a reference was going on, and the room full of lawyers and witnesses and business was driving fast, some deeply occupied legal gentleman present, seeing Bartleby wholly unemployed, would request him to run round to his, the legal gentleman's, office, and fetch some papers for him. Thereupon Bartleby would tranquilly decline, and yet remain idle as before. Then the lawyer would give a great stare, and turn to me. And what could I say? At last I was made aware that all through the circle of my professional acquaintance a whisper of wonder was running round, having reference to the strange creature I kept at my office. This worried me very much and as the idea came upon me of his possibly turning out a long-lived man, 
and keep occupying my chambers, and denying my authority, and perplexing my visitors, and scandalizing my professional reputation, and casting a general gloom over the premises, keeping soul and body together to the last upon his savings, for doubtless he spent but half a dime a day, and in the end perhaps outlive me, and claim possession of my office by right of his perpetual occupancy, as all these dark anticipations crowded upon me more and more, and my friends continually intruded their relentless remarks upon the apparition in my room, a great change was wrought in me. I resolved to gather all my faculties together, and forever rid me of this intolerable incubus. Ere revolving any complicated project, however, adapted to this end, I first simply suggested to Bartleby the propriety of his permanent departure. In a calm and serious tone, I commended the idea to his careful and mature consideration. But having taken three days to meditate upon it, he apprised me that his original determination remained the same, in short, that he still preferred to abide with me. "'What shall I do?' I now said to myself, buttoning up my coat to the last button. "'What shall I do? What ought I to do? What does conscience say I should do with this man, or rather ghost? Rid myself of him I must. Go he shall. But how? You will not thrust him, the poor pale passive mortal, you will not thrust such a helpless creature out of your door. You will not honour yourself by such cruelty. No, I will not. I cannot do that. Rather would I let him live and die here, and then mason up his remains in the wall. And what then will you do? For all your coaxing he will not budge. Bribes he leaves under your own paperweight on your table. In short, it is quite plain that he prefers to cling to you. Then something severe, something unusual, must be done. What? Surely you will not have him collared by a constable, and commit his innocent pallor to the common jail? And upon what ground would you procure such a thing to be done? A vagrant, is he? What, he a vagrant, a wanderer, who refuses to budge? It is because he will not be a vagrant, then, that you seek to count him as a vagrant. That is too absurd. No visible means of support. There I have him. Wrong again, for indubitably he does support himself and that is the only unanswerable proof that any man can show of his possessing the means so to do. No more, then. Since he will not quit me, I must quit him. I will change my offices. I will move elsewhere, and give him fair notice that if I find him on my new premises, I will then proceed against him as a common trespasser. Acting accordingly, next day, I thus addressed him. I find these chambers too far from the city hall. The air is unwholesome. 
In a word, I propose to remove my offices next week, and shall no longer require your services. I tell you this now, in order that you may seek another place. He made no reply, and nothing more was said. On the appointed day I engaged carts and men, proceeded to my chambers, and having but little furniture, everything was removed in a few hours. Throughout the scrivener remained standing behind the screen, which I directed to be removed the last thing. It was withdrawn, and being folded up like a huge folio, left him the motionless occupant of a naked room. I stood in the entry watching him for a moment, while something from within me upbraided me. I re-entered, with my hand in my pocket, and, and my heart in my mouth. Good-bye, Bartleby. I am going. Good-bye, and God some way bless you. And take that, slipping something in his hand. But it dropped upon the floor, and then, strange to say, I tore myself from him whom I had so longed to be rid of. End of Part 3